0: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Nursing Matters with me, Rachel Hollis. I'm the chair of the Royal College of Nursing Professional Nursing Committee. I'm a children's cancer nurse and I live in North Yorkshire. As we record this episode, the first thing I wanted to say is how much our thoughts are with nurses and healthcare workers in Ukraine and neighbouring countries supporting those caught up in the conflict. I echo the message of support and solidarity sent by our president, Dr. Denise Chaffer. And I know that nurses across the UK are looking at ways they may be able to offer support or extend the hand of friendship in these really dark days. On our podcast today, we're looking at the critical role of nursing in cancer care ahead of National Cancer CNS Day on the 15th of March. And alongside our guests, I'm joined by a special co-host for the occasion, Paul Travat. Paul's a senior nurse practitioner who brings to the podcast 30 years of experience in cancer and palliative care. Hello, Paul. How are you?
1: Hi, Rachel. I'm very well, thank you. The sun's shining, the glass is green and the daffodils are out.
0: Spring is definitely on the way, isn't it? (laughs) It is indeed. (laughs) We've got a a pond full of um, copulating frogs, which is quite interesting. Um, so, Paul, could you tell us a bit more about your background, particularly focusing on your work as a cancer nurse?
1: Yeah. So, so Rachel, thank you very much for inviting me to co-host. Um, I, I think I've had a, quite an eclectic career as, as a cancer nurse. Um, as you've mentioned, I've had 30 years experience working in oncology and specialist palliative care. And during that time, I've sort of gone from being a staff nurse all the way through to director. Um, I've been fortunate to sit on a number of national policy uh, initiatives, specifically focusing around the role of cancer nursing, the issue of cancer inequalities um, and the cancer patient experience. Um, I've been a trustee of a couple of um, cancer nursing charities, uh, specifically Yukon's in England, uh, and more recently, eons uh which is based in belgium and for for your listeners that don't know eons is the european oncology nursing society it's the largest cancer nursing charity across europe and probably one of the oldest um I've published and uh, presented research and my, my areas of interest very much are around particularly workforce and that of the CNS or the clinical nurse specialist role, particularly in cancer, but also in some other specialities or modalities. And uh, I, I have a special interest in in cancer inequalities. Um, I think it's also important to point out that I've worked within specialist palliative care and I've been fortunate to be a clinical nurse specialist in both the community for specialist palliative care as well as hospital and I've also managed a large palliative care service.
0: Brilliant, so a perfect choice to co-host this episode in which we're going to focus on on cancer care and, and in particular the, the nursing workforce in, in cancer. So I'd like to introduce our our first guest. Our first guest is is Nikki Morris. And Nikki is chair of the Royal College of Nursing, Cancer and Breast Care Forum, and is also the CEO of Age UK Camden. So hello, Nikki, and welcome to Nursing Matters.
2: Hi there. Great to be with you. Thank you so
0: much. And Nikki, um, that's an interesting combination of your role at Age UK with a cancer nursing background. How do those two roles work together for you? How do they dovetail?
2: I think that's a really good question and one that, uh, that I frequently. Um, talk about so I, I in the past was a gynaecology oncology specialist nurse for many years and then moved into the third sector first of all as a deputy CEO of a ch- cancer charity and now CEO of AGK Camden and at the point I moved into the role of CEO AGK Camden I did consult with my forum and the colleagues whether they felt it was appropriate for me to continue um, to complete my tenureship as the chair. And it was felt that actually it would add value from the point of view that we as cancer nurses, and if we're looking today uh, specifically at the cancer specialist nurse role, how that interacts with the wider sector, both within the NHS and and the wider third sector. And I think it has brought with it a real richness around how we look after people with cancer both within the health and the social care and and for me it's about seeing the the role of the CNS as well from both perspectives so I'm quite long in the tooth now so it, it's great to sort of bring the experience of both to a discussion like this.
1: And um, I'd like to say a particular welcome to Helen Pearson. Helen is the co-chair of the Royal College of Nursing in the Children's Cancer and Leukaemia Group and the Children and Young Persons Cancer Nursing Community. She's also an advanced nurse practitioner in children and young people's cancer at the Royal Marsden NHS Foundation Trust. Good afternoon, Helen. How are you?
3: I'm very well, Paul. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's delight. I'm delighted
1: to be here. (laughs) So, Helen, I can see from um, some some of our studies we've done that you're currently an NIHR doctoral student and you're studying for your PhD. Can you tell us a little bit more about the research study and what what that's about for our listeners?
3: So, I have a National Institute of Health Research Clinical Doctoral Research Fellowship, um, which is funded by Health Education England. And that enables me to carry out my PhD whilst also maintaining my clinical skills. I have an 80-20 split. And that fellowship allows me to undertake my PhD and provides um, a package of training and development for me to enhance my research kind of capabilities, really, to try and match my um, excess expertise and skills within clinical practice. And I am in my fourth year part-time as a PhD student um, and in my second year of holding the fellowships, which is challenging but very good.
1: <laughs> Would you support nurses doing the sort of as you say sort of almost real-time PhD where you are still actively clinically as well as studying?
3: Most definitely I'm really passionate about what what we term clinical academic careers so where you are um, doing a bit of research and um, doing a bit of clinical and bringing that together because for me my PhD was born out of my clinical experience and what I saw in clinical practice and I hope that what I what I get out of the PhD and what my findings are, that I'm able to bring that back into clinical practice to support parents. Specifically, I'm looking at treatment decision-making, so to support parents in making quite complex treatment decisions. So for me personally, I couldn't imagine doing the two separately. I, I feel they very much go hand in hand in being able to bring kind of, I suppose what some people would say, bench to bedside, really, um, and being able to integrate and disseminate my findings.
1: And and as an iterative process. Is there any early learning that you, you, you can share with us or anything just as reflections?
3: I think you have to be very organised. You're juggling clinical demands. Obviously, as a senior nurse, I have clinical responsibilities within my service and also juggling the PhD demands, which cognitively are quite exhausting at yeah. times. I've been heavily involved in patient public involvement within my research study for my PhD, um, working with parents that have experience within the topic that I'm um, researching and from that have been able to develop a a unit parent patient public involvement group within my service so actually you can see the transferable skills between the two which has been really good.
1: Brilliant, brilliant. Helen, welcome. Thank you.
0: The 15th of March is National Cancer CNS Day. This is a new initiative designed to raise the profile of the Clinical Nurse Specialist in Cancer Care. I believe it began with the Greater Manchester Cancer Alliance and has gained widespread support nationally, including from the Royal College of Nursing. Nikki, do you think that we need this designated day to raise the profile of the Cancer
2: CNS? I think undoubtedly we do. I think when it first came um, up as an issue... It was interesting for me to see how quickly it took off and the questions that were asked. So one of the questions that, that I was asked almost almost straight away when someone talked to me about having a CNS day was, what, what does a CNS do? So if that is a question that's still being asked, we definitely need a CNS day in order to further the understanding of the wider population and to highlight the really crucial integral work that CNSs do. And how would you characterise that work, Nikki? It's been interesting for me because I was in on on, uh, on one of the very first CNSs and so I uh, increasingly there, there's fewer of us that knew, knew cancer care before CNSs and cancer care now where you just cannot uh, think of services without CNSs, and I think it, you can summarise it it, it, it. it has various strands to it. So you've got somebody with that specialist information, that that knowledge about a certain area of, of uh, cancer care or a certain tumour tumour group, and that knowledge isn't just for patients; it's for carers and and it's for colleagues. And as we heard earlier from, from Helen, you know, it's about gaining new knowledge as well, as we're more and more involved in that in that research and, and some action learning. There's a, a whole role to play around decision making, again, for all of those groups. And CNSs themselves are very good decision makers, as well as helping others make good decisions and informed decisions. Uh, There's something about better patient experience. We know that often the CNS is the one member of the team that stays consistent throughout the treatment and beyond. And that's highlighted uh, in the satisfaction surveys, patient satisfaction surveys. Uh, The CNS has a fundamental role about coordination of care. Uh, So linking up the various teams and really making sure that that assessment is holistic and the care that is planned is person-centred. And increasingly, the CNS is is at the real centre of often instigating and implementing new initiatives. So they're they're there for uh, ensuring the patient gets the very best care. They're there to support colleagues and and ensure that, that the care that is provided is uh, appropriate and, and personalised and they're there in order to improve the care that is provided um, and the learning that we have both both today and, and tomorrow and further into the future.
1: So Helen I think Nikki's given us a nice little uh, sort of snapshot of the role the clinical nurse specialist plays in, in perhaps adult care including sort of decision-making sharing of specialist information or knowledge uh, the coordination of care and then very much this sort of uh, transformational agent service innovation from a perspective of working with children and young people is there anything different that the cns might do first question and also then bringing in your role as an advanced nurse practitioner is there an overlap there or there are some very real differences
3: yeah sure so i think um in terms of the clinical nurse specialist role I think Nikki's probably hit the nail on the head, but obviously the complexities of working with children and teenagers and young people—you know—it's not just the patient; it comes with parents and extended family, which is a slightly different setup to adults. So the, the kind of joint aspect there to consider, but there's also a, a whole bunch of kind of holistic needs to consider. You know, children and cognitive development of the child and their understanding, how we can support them within kind of hospital and managing and tolerating their treatment. And also, obviously, the teenagers, young adolescents—they're in such a transition period in their lives. Education, you know, relationships, you know, sex and fertility—all of those sort of things. So, I suppose that the landscape in things that we need to think about is slightly different. Definitely, slightly different to adults, but the core components are, are the same. And in, in t- terms of the advanced nurse practitioner role, I mean, I, I was a clinical nurse specialist before I was an advanced nurse practitioner. So, we kind of trans all of us advanced nurse practitioners transitioned from clinical nurse specialist posts, which I think is good for parents because and patients because it provides a nice continuity in care in clinical practice and providing that kind of bedside um, uh, care in terms of uh, reviewing children for and um, patients for kind of chemotherapy or in treatments and prescribing. And that provides an additional level of support for the CNS role so we can pick up stuff to support them, maybe doing some education when they come to our review clinics with patients and their families. And we provide their expertise within the different tumour groups. So I I definitely think there's a combination of skills. And personally, for me, I think I'm better at my advanced nurse practitioner role because I've come from a clinical specialist role.
1: What do you think are the unique workforce challenges faced by uh, the nursing community when we look at this specific group, this age range of children and young adults, young people
3: you know the child and young person is the patient at the end of the day and obviously you know some mm. of that is cognitive development as to how much they have an input in their treatment and sure. say of what they want to do I mean for me I think it's really important you know a child might be five or six but they might have a preference and how they have their medications or yeah. a rituals of how they manage their treatment and actually is making sure that we manage that to facilitate the, the young person or child and the parent as well so it, it's that dual aspect which can be quite tricky to navigate sometimes because at the end of the day you're trying to act in the best interests of your patient but obviously you've got parents there and vice versa that we might not always agree on aspects and it's it's work it's that partnership between nurse specialists the patient and the parents.
0: Paul one of the aims of the day you know is obviously about raising the profile of the CNS and one of the further aims of that is is to look at improving recruitment and retention into Mm. these roles that are pretty challenging for some of the reasons that both Nikki and Helen have have identified and I know that you were one of the architects of the first census of the CNS workforce in cancer care that was um, that was taken up nationally on a recurrent basis but I don't think has been undertaken for for some years now but Mm -hmm. what what do we know about the current state of the cms workforce in in cancer
1: i think that's a really good point you make there that the the last census that was carried out was by macmillan cancer support and this was in 2017 so in some ways that the data is already five years old so i Mm. suppose my first observation is whether or not another census is needed or required and if that was the case what is the agency or who would lead on that But taking along some of the broad, I think, broad headlights that that I think is happening, and I'd be really, really interested for both Nikki and um, Helen to join in at any point either agree or disagree I think there are we continue to see a number of variations and, and in, in no p- particular order of importance I think the, the first issue is we continue to see downbanding of of the role of the clinical nurse specialist um, and we're seeing a lot of people that were previously band sevens with them being drifted down towards a band six and even a band five I think we continue to see clinical nurse specialist reviews being carried out and often acute trusts commission an external consultancy that often has very limited workforce experience to carry out an evaluation of of value for money of the CNS role. Uh, And that's really disappointing, given that the huge amount of evidence, research and policy that exists that clearly demonstrates the demonstrable value of the CNS in terms of both. Uh, patient safety efficiency and you know positive uh, positive impacts uh, around patient experience there is also then I think variations in 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 actually provision and we've seen in the past certainly there's a variation in cns provision by both geography and by tumor type uh, and simply put it's quite clear that there are some parts of the country that have greater CNS provision than others. And and I think when we've looked into this, there's no exact workforce calculator that's been used for this, and rather it's grown up through informal recruitment processes. The other thing I think of concern would be around the aging of the workforce. Uh, Macmillan has published data that suggests that at least a third of current adult cancer specialist nurses are fifty and over, and many and many of them will be retiring in the next sort of one to five years. That will have an obvious impact on on the actual on the workforce itself and the care that we can provide for cancer patients and their families and In fact, Macmillan has published data in two thousand and twenty saying that at the rate that we are moving we'll need an additional two thousand five hundred adult nurse specialists, if if only to keep in line with where we are going as a workforce. So there needs to be much, much greater investment. And I suppose my last thought is around really the relationship with the voluntary sector. Charities have for many years invested in clinical nurse specialists posts through what we call pump priming. They've provided financial support and financial assistance for education and training. And I think Um, were the charities to stop tomorrow, the impact on the workforce would be quite simply, I think, catastrophic. We have this also symbiotic relationship with the voluntary sector where they have invested up to probably a third of adult specialist posts by many of the charities. Now, I see perhaps the 10-year cancer plan, the new plan, as perhaps an opportunity to reframe that relationship between the NHS and the voluntary sector to understand Perhaps more clearly going forward, how how that relationship will function. Um, so that's just a, a sort of snapshot of my thoughts.
2: I've got some thoughts on that, um, uh, Paul, and I would completely concur with what you with what you've said there. Um, I find it incredibly disappointing that we are still looking at uh, the value of a specialist nurse. So when we talk about undertaking pieces of work to look at value for money uh, we shouldn't even be asking that question at this stage and yet we are we're down banding from seven to six to five something I never thought I would see a band five specialist nurse uh, you know that can't be right you know we know that the knowledge and skill set is even greater today than it than it was in the past and the activities that they're taking undertaking are at a higher level, and yet we're be, we're we're down them. What does that say about about the value um and I would go on to say that actually exactly as you've quoted that this is a this is a report a piece of work undertaken by macmillan uh, We need to get this into mainstream government and, and nhs uh, provision we shouldn't be relying on the third sector to pump prime or to report or, or to undertake reports like this in order to further the cause so i would completely concur that we need to uh, with the with the next 10-year plan it really moved the discussion not from a a, a premise of nice to have but a need to have, and how we do that succession planning, and how we ensure that we both value the people that are in the role now, uh, and ensure that it, it's there in a form that is not only fit for purpose, but but spearheads the, the level of care that we want for our patients in the future.
3: I think you've both made really good points, Paul and Nikki, and the whole justifying the need probably really grates on me because we don't do that with other professions. We don't do that with other health professionals or our medics. So why is the specialist nurse role constantly under scrutiny? For me, not only about succession planning, but also, you know, there is research out there about burnout in the CNS role in particular, how we um, support and nurture and safeguard our nurse specialists who have such vast expertise and making sure that we succession plan clearly but also support people appropriately that are within those roles and you know down banding is, a, a, is a, a sure way of showing of signaling that, that the value is not there and actually really should be.
1: And I, you know I think if I was going to speak from the heart I think the the coupling of down banding with the, these consistent reviews being carried out almost on a regular basis you know, it's difficult to, to not wonder if there is an economical reason behind this um, that these posts are being further and further diluted down, uh, and that will be to the detriment not only of the workforce but but the client and the patient group that they support.
2: And, and I think there is the issue around, that, as you were you were saying about the the workforce tool to to measure some of this. I think there is the issue as well as about making sure we don't have tokenism, making sure that the workload means that, that patients can actually access their specialist nurse in a timely manner in order to ensure that's an effective service. So, um, both uh, Paul and, and Nikki, you've both
0: mentioned the fact that the, um, there is on the horizon a new 10 year cancer plan, um, which is a cancer plan for, for England. Um, and the government's calling for evidence from individuals and organisations on what should be in it. And I think you've um, talked, Nikki, about the, the need for investment. This call for evidence is a really important opportunity to respond to a consultation I'm sure the forum will be responding but what do you think the priorities suggested in the plan at the moment are they the right priorities or are there other priorities that you and the and the forum would want to see in there
2: at this stage I can only talk for myself from the point of view that there's always a process that we that we undertake in order to respond collectively I think that i th- i think like it, it, we can't help but welcome this initiative absolutely um particularly at this period of time after covid where we've seen uh, a backlog in in care prov- provided and also in people coming forward so Um, And we've also got an issue around people who've had their diagnosis and and care provision during very challenging circumstances uh, during COVID. And and there's no doubt that there will be an additional care needs as a result of that. So so this is very timely from the point of view of trying to address things that started before COVID, that were present before COVID and, and that have been exacerbated. I think, from if we concentrate on the CNS uh, scenario, I think there is an issue around workforce. Of course, the numbers um, and the workload. What those what those numbers are expected to to look after, and there is an issue around access to training, both those CNSs that that are in place now, but also those. Uh, nurses that want to progress on to become CNSs and we need to ensure that we've got a workforce in place that's that's fit to uh, not only deliver the care of the patients that we have now to deliver the care and, and address the backlog that we undoubtedly will have the fact that we've got increasing number of patients coming through and increase in numbers of different treatments, which need different care plans and different interventions, uh, as well as ensuring that, that we've got that succession planning to make sure that we've got the knowledge and skill set for the next generation of specialist nurses that come along.
0: What could make a difference in building back that nursing workforce in order to implement the cancer plan, an ambitious plan for cancer. What what would you want to see there?
2: Well, I think we want to see some real tangible um, targets, I guess, around that. So, So we, of course, want to make sure that we've got the environment right so that we can recruit the right people and retain those. So that's all about... Pay and conditions, which includes expectations of, of workload, includes uh, clinical supervision. Helen um, talked about burnout. We absolutely have to ensure that the health and well-being of the nurses that, that we've got there at the moment, and and we have to move. We we have to move from a position where we are not questioning the value but we're just saying these people are an in the integral part. Uh, in the report that Macmillan did in 2021, 20, they could put some figures on the shortfall now, and the, and, and if we continue the shortfall of, of CNSs in the future. There's something around actually putting some some uh, targets in there, of actual numbers, I think, in order that we can actually measure the success. Because I think one of the issues is that we continuously say that that the specialist nurse that you know it's very different responsibilities in different areas be that tumour sites or geographical sites and I think that we've got to stop hiding behind some of those to actually say we've got enough information now and now we need to actually move that forward.
1: And I wonder just bringing in helen into this helen from, from from your perspective from from children and young people in terms of the community you represent um what is it that you would be looking for from a 10 year uh, a new 10-year cancer plan
3: i mean I, I echo what nikki said particularly in terms of workforce development and succession planning i think in paediatrics you know particularly over the last five ten years We've got a lot more precision medicine, targeted therapies, immunotherapy and being able to ensure that the training and development reflects those, um, you know, the newer treatments that we're seeing coming through. Also, it's about accessibility for services in particular for us. We work as children's cancer primary treatment centres across the UK. Uh, Children and young people can travel an hour and a half, two hours to their primary treatment centre for core treatment. And then we have our paediatric oncology shared care hospitals that are sort of closer to home um, that can provide kind of um, different levels of care in terms of managing side effects, etc. But actually, we really need to be looking at ambulatory care and being able to deliver more of those treatments closer to home for families. And one of the things when I looked at the call for evidence, I was quite surprised that people that could, you know, comment and provide feedback on that, it was only open to people over the age of 16 years which doesn't really bring in the paediatric voice. You know, we in research will include, you know, children and young people that are younger than 16 in research. So I'm not quite sure why we're not bringing them into um, the uh, call for evidence, but that's probably a bit of my bugbear. And um, I agreed with, um, there was talk about, you know, early diagnosis, you know, the amount of times we see, you know, children, you know, history that they've repeatedly gone to their GP, a lot of symptoms associated with childhood cancer could be married up with you know, your typical you know childhood viruses um, and there is a, a childhood cancer diagnosis study that's looking at how children are diagnosed uh, in the UK what their symptoms are you know what services they may a- access to look at kind of what the national picture is of, of diagnosis and how we can improve outcomes so that work although it won't be ready for the government course action will hopefully inform kind of how we manage services and diagnosis sort of going forward really.
1: Mm. And, and I'm really surprised in some ways to hear you, you talk about the absence of voice of the person under 16 and 15 and under. And it would be interesting. I'm, I'm almost certainly the children's charities will drop or jump all over that in terms of their, their constructive feedback to the secretary of state.
3: I'd like to think so. I mean, we have, you know, patient public involvement groups with with children and children should, you know, children, you know, in pediatrics, they're, they're at the heart of what, what, what we do. So, To not involve them, I mean, children have always got something to say, right? So, I mean, to not involve them would be, I think, is quite disappointing, actually.
0: As we're hearing from both of you, really, cancer does affect people at, at all ages. And I think we're hearing very clearly articulated from from Helen, um, the different issues and factors that impact on on both ends of the age spectrum, but also we heard from you, Nikki, uh, about the impact of COVID on cancer services, and you you've talked a bit about that. But could you sort of tell us a bit more about the the impact of the pandemic on on cancer services?
2: I mean, there's obviously, as you as you can imagine, that there's been various stages and phases and uh, and aspects of that. But I think with a broad brush approach, I think. Uh, there's been a whole issue around patients coming forward with um, with symptoms. That the classic one is people with a cough who who thought it might be COVID, and when they were reassured it wasn't COVID, didn't think that it might be lung cancer, for instance. That that's just one example. Other examples where people found it hard to access or felt that their symptom wasn't wasn't important enough during a, a COVID pandemic. And so we've got a lot of people who uh, struggled to access or, or felt they shouldn't access the service at that point. And therefore, we know that we've got catch up to do with patients um, who may well be presenting with, with a later diagnosis. And of course, we had a, a, an impact on screening with some of the screening that most of that is, has been caught up now, but but we had a whole issue where some of the screening um, had to stop or was delayed because of COVID. And then we've got the issue around people who are diagnosed during COVID and how their. Care was changed, so whilst we can look and, and, and say that the treatment for most patients remained the same, actually how it was provided was different and and Helen will be able to talk around how teenage and young adults, for instance as well as adults, had to go through treatment often uh, on their own consultations on their own when one would have normally had somebody with them, uh, which directly impacts on some of that wider experience and understanding of what what was happening and how it felt to to have that. I think there's been a sort of multitude of uh, effects that that COVID has had on many layers and and many levels and will take us quite a long time to regroup from. And I think alongside that, you've got the effect that it's had on the workforce and with many... CNSs if we concentrate on those today doing a multitude of of additional work so for instance when you've got people going through treatment without a a member of their uh, you know family or or a friend the role of the CNS becomes even more important as that advocate and and that person to share that with Um, as long uh, you know alongside some of the issues around Trying to interact with patients in a way that had to be socially distanced and with muscle, which was less optimal for pa- patients' um, uh, mental well being uh, as well as trying to protect their their physical health, so I think there's a lot that a lot that we 've learned a lot still to learn, and I think that we mustn't. Um, underestimate the toll it's taken on the patients that have gone through it, the patients that have had a delay for whatever reason, and the workforce that, that have looked after them and will continue to look after cancer patients going forward? I think children's cancer
3: primary treatment centres across the UK have done a sterling work in trying to keep the services going for patients, for children, young people. Um, you know, the biggest thing for families has been the restrictive visiting. So that support network, siblings not being able to see each other, parents not being able to swap over and, and the dynamics within the family and the, the potential, some of the issues that's caused. As Nikki touched on, we've had you know parents come to clinic on their own, trying to digest information. The huge additional stress, parents talked about the huge additional stress of kind of trying to manage you know, their child with cancer, but also trying to manage you know home life, working, parents working from home. And I think, as, as Nikki said, you know, a huge impact on staff, particularly staff morale. I mean, that social engagement with staff at times, at Christmas parties, none of that's been able to happen. And we've lost in some ways a bit of a, a connection, I suppose, with our colleagues. Um, you know, we're wearing masks all the time. You know, we're encouraged not to see each other outside work. And obviously, aside from all the, the COVID 19 testing we've had to do with um, children, and that obviously don't like things being stuck up their nose at the back of their throat at the best of times, but having to do that regularly with them for coming in for treatment and also parents as well. So, and alongside managing kind of staff sickness with COVID and isolation and staff having to kind of come in early, leave late and and juggle shifts around. In the early stages of COVID we did look at kind of whether or not there were we had any kind of delays in diagnosis and for us our numbers matched what we would see in years prior to COVID so we were quite encouraged by that that there didn't seem to be any kind of delayed diagnosis but across the UK people are now beginning to see that some numbers particularly for um, uh, leukaemia seem to be Raising exponentially, and whether that is because of late diagnosis and people not wanting to access GPs or um, you know other kind of local healthcare services, is sort of remains to be seen, really.
0: And I think certainly internationally, there is some evidence, isn't there, of countries where the healthcare systems are much more fragile than they are here. There have been significant delays, I think, in, in diagnosis and the numbers of children being diagnosed has has dropped in very many countries, particularly in, in low and middle income countries.
1: Building on that, that obviously there was the previous publication um, by the APPG that looked at the issue in relation to inequalities in cancer care. Uh, and From all of the different factors that were identified, age was listed as a significant factor in access to treatment and care. Nikki, from your role as CEO, is this this your experience?
2: Yes, it is. Uh, I think sometimes it's not always recognised as being an inequality. Sometimes it's around people who think they're doing the right thing, but it results in an inequality. So I, I think there are issues around older adults, particularly, I would say, Uh, we know that a lot of the outcomes of of cancer care and cancer treatments are are, are affected around social determinants, for instance. But there's all sorts of other issues that sometimes come into play. So uh, people's ability, mobility and and ability to access um, appointments uh, and investigations around the social support, people's cognition, um ability and their wider you know organ function, things like that can can really affect decisions that are made and access to sometimes screening and, and sometimes around diagnosis and treatment that when one looks at it holistically one could say that we could do better for that uh, cohort of patients who are older who might need a more detailed holistic assessment. But if we provide that, we could provide better care with better outcomes.
1: And how does the CNS role, the clinical nurse specialist role, as you say, come forward in this in terms of the holistic assessment? Are there other aspects the CNS can do in terms of advocacy for this 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 group?
2: Yes, I, I mean, I think it is something that that special all specialist nurses need to really reflect and really ask the question as to are they providing the very best care, and and certainly sometimes um, all healthcare providers can take a rather paternalistic approach, uh, which again comes into Helen's role around the patient voice and making sure that the patient is at the centre and making the decisions, informed decisions with the right support. I think that holistic assessment is vital and the CNS Austin plays a very integral part in doing that so that one can balance up Making sure that that we don't do under treatment, uh, but again, don't do over treatment on on people who who may have a greater fragility. I think spending that time w- with that specialist knowledge of being able to inform and discuss so that p- patients understand and can make the best decision for them. Uh, often, when they they have maybe a number of of comorbidities and and different social situations and I think the other one is making sure that they have access to to clinical trials and to research because we know that there's a number of reports that have come out that have highlighted the the issue around older adults you know the the barriers to to equitable care in older adults and one of the things that comes up is is that there is a lower uptake and a lower access to trials and research and yet this is a very cohort that we should be looking at because there, there are so many questions that we need to ask ourselves and learning that we really want to know in order to to optimize the care we can provide.
1: It strikes me unless we have this client group taking part in research studies we won't have the findings or the data or intelligence to help inform us as we go forward Via treatment modalities,
2: absolutely. So I think it's it's always the way that actually the people who often we know less about are are the very people that aren't having uh, the access to this opportunity to extend our knowledge. As a population, we're an aging population. We know that cancer; it has a people have a greater risk of developing cancers as they get older and cancers sits within a wider health and social care picture. So it's it's imperative for not only from an, an individual level, but a population level that we understand how we can do it better and how we can prevent cancers and diagnose them earlier for this cohort. So that actually the question around, uh, around treatment and fragility is reduced for as many as
1: we can. And as you mentioned, for for a group of of, of older people where comorbidities is an issue, yeah. and they may be under the care of a number of different specialist teams, such as respiratory, cardiac, as well as cancer, yeah. I can see how vital the CNS role is to that, to, to pull in together some of those those p- p- pathways as such. It can be incredibly complex and quite messy.
2: Absolutely. And this is what patients bring up time and time again, is the communication between the teams and making sure that people have a care plan that incorporates all of the comorbidities. So not having discrete care plans just for for one disease or or for one intervention, but making sure the teams speak to each other, that the care plan is a live document and remains relevant and the interaction of the disease processes and the treatments are identified within that, so that it is a coordinated uh, care service that's delivered. Helen, thinking about
0: you know going back to that other end of of the spectrum, thinking about access to to care, I think historically there's um, there is evidence around the teenage and young adult population in terms of access to care. And, and Nikki's talked about access to clinical trials for older adults. And for teenagers and young adults, that has been an issue. Is it one that you think is improving as there's been greater awareness of the, the need of needs of that population for a, a treatment that is, again, more tailored to particular conditions? I
3: definitely think accessibility has got better I mean obviously I work in a trust that has a huge clinical trials portfolio and so accessibility is good whether or not that's geographical location based as to accessibility in other parts of the UK I probably can't comment however you know clinical trials are usually open across the board and I have known you know young people to come you know from up north down to access potential clinical trials so I do think that's got better I mean that cancer inequalities document that there, there was discussion about age specific care for young adults and mm. you know I think there was a comment about a patient that had Hodgkin's lymphoma as a young adult was treated on an adult ward um, and the difficulties with that in terms of access to education and parents being able to stay and having friends to visit etc. I do think we've improved age specific care for young adults I, I'm sure there
0: is more more we could do. And I think going back to some of the start of our conversation was around the role of CNS and and other nurses within cancer care as advocates for for patients and ensuring that that they do get access to the sorts of treatment and and care that they need, which I think whether you're talking about children, adults, adults who have learning disability, older adults, teenagers... You know, It's very much about how we um, promote access to, to care and treatment that's, that's relevant for all of those, isn't it, really?
3: Yeah, and I think also there's something on top of that about information giving and provision of information and how people digest that information that we give so they're making informed decisions. I mean, I'm, I'm a massive fan of health literacy. I think we need to look at different ways of providing information to patients that, that's age-appropriate. Um, you know sticking a patient information sheet in front of a a child or young person actually isn't always quite enough in terms of their cognitive understanding and actually there's other ways in terms of visuals and you know spoken voiceover um, information that we can give so I, I think that that all goes hand in hand in terms of making informed decisions and accessibility to treatments and understanding kind of clinical trials and the landscape of what's available to them.
2: I would just concur with Helen around that, and and I think health literacy is something that's really important, and it's not just about age, it, it is around that not presuming and understanding and ensuring that the information one gives is in the format that the patient can understand and then can use in order to make those those informed decisions. And that's where some of the, the skill and the nuance of, of how one ensures that, that patients had the very best care for them, and that absolutely needs a skilled care um, and a CNS presence in order to ensure that that happens.
0: We've covered an awful lot today. I'm sure we could talk longer, but we've come to the end of the podcast. But you can contribute to the conversation by following hashtag National Cancer CNS Day on social media. I think you've heard already that both our co host Paul, and um, guest Nikki will be taking parts in in Twitter chats on, on the day. So look out for that. We'll be back next month and we'd love to know what you would like us to talk about. So tell us what you're interested in or concerned about in the world of nursing by tweeting us at the RCN with the hashtag nursing matters and we'll do our best to cover them in future episodes. But for this week, thanks to our special guests. So thank you, Nikki. My pleasure. Thank you.
1: And thank you, Helen.
3: Thank you for having me. It's been lovely
1: to talk.
0: And particular thanks to my guest co-host, Paul. Thank you, Paul.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Remember to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got time, give us a nice positive review. It's the best way to spread the word about nursing matters. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.